Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's episode, we have a short review-only episode of the show, in which we'll be talking about two new movies with opposing yet related conceptions of American heroism. Clint Eastwood's Sully and Antoine Fuqua's The Magnificent Seven are both fascinated with stubborn, courageous American men who are masters of their craft and confident in their expertise, no matter how much skepticism or vitriol they must endure for the sometimes unorthodox nature of their practice. I'll be joined by Alan Appel for discussion of these two new movies, one an adaptation of a real-life story about a pilot who crash-landed a plane in the Hudson River in January 2009, saving the lives of the 155 passengers and crew on board, the other a remake of an iconic mid-century Western, which was in turn an adaptation of a revered Japanese samurai flick, about seven roguish cowboys who work together to protect a small village and its beleaguered population. But first, I'm very happy to welcome back to the show after a few weeks of, uh, I guess, hiatus or just we've been doing different different interviews, but Alan Appel. Alan is a staff writer for the New Haven Independent, the co-host of This Day in New Haven History for WNHH, and my regular fellow movie reviewer on Deep Focus. Hi, Tom. Nice to be back. Thanks so much for coming back, Alan. It's good to have you here. Okay. I'll try to keep this long-winded intro as non-long-winded as possible. So, actually, Alan, one of the first movie reviews that you wrote for The Independent last year, or at least one of the first that I read, was of Clint Eastwood's American Sniper, which starred Bradley Cooper as Texas rodeo rider turned unstoppable sharpshooter Chris Kyle. Kyle served four tours of duty in Iraq, where he found himself continually at war with the physical exhilaration and psychological trauma that comes with being really, really good at killing people. In that 2015 movie, Eastwood's hero enlists with full confidence that he's a good guy going off to kill bad guys for his country, and each tour slowly reveals to him that there's a very human cost to being a sniper, and that that cost is not just exacted upon the victim at the other end of the bullet. If movies like Oliver Stone's Born on the Fourth of July and JFK chart a kind of deprogramming of idealistic Americans who've been brainwashed into patriotism, then American Sniper is a movie that examines the psychological melee of war and how one man's super competence may represent, at the same time, the best and worst his country has to offer. So I wonder if we could start our conversation about Sully by reflecting a little bit on how it compares with the conflicted portrait of heroism offered in American Sniper. As you watch this story of Chesley Sullenberger Jr., played by Tom Hanks, a veteran United Airlines pilot who had to land a plane in the Hudson after both engines failed, and then had to defend that decision in front of an intensely skeptical National Transportation Safety Board, did you find an equally compelling depiction of American heroism eroding under time and self-reflection, or was there a clear right and wrong presented in this movie, and our man Sully, pilot wings and white mustache and all, was on the side of right? That, no, that's a very interesting comparison. I, no, I found America and Sniper, I, th- I think, just on quick reflection, a much uh, richer movie, um, uh, a sort of a, a true hero in uh, a complex situation. Um, the Sully, uh, you know, I didn't know who, that that Clint Eastwood was the was the director actually um, until the credits, and and uh, I remember being a little shocked by that. Um, I thought it was well directed. I thought it was a good movie, but there's something very slight about it um, uh, compared to uh, American Sniper or to uh, you know the 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 he- he- hero films, uh, whether they're um, uh, Tom Hanks' previous role as that uh, in, in is it a bridge bridge of spies a bridge of spies where. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I I think you get the heft from a hero if it, it, when when um, 
uh, when the odds are great. So I, I wonder if when you refer to the drama here being a bit slight or the movie is slight, are, are you referring to the conflict that the character, just kind of the, the plot mechanics that the character is confronted with, these, the story that he is at the center of and the challenges he has to overcome? Because we're, you're right, when we think of heroism, and in particular when we think of Clint Eastwood movies, and he is a familiar face from many a Western, uh, whether behind the camera or in front of the camera, and whether it is, you know, these are Westerns either revering the gunslinging cowboy, like the Man With No Name series, or Unforgiven, that's kind of deconstructing that heroism. At least we have, you know, life and death and guns and bloodshed are always the kind of stakes presented on at the uh, that's right. kind of front of the table here. Yeah. And we do, there certainly is the prospect of death with the plain... Uh, potentially crashing into New York City, but when you when you say slight, what what about this seems slight to you? Well, the weakness of the film, or or the kind of internal conflict in the in the uh, project, or the things that are things that work against it to me, is that um, uh, the incident itself, which took all of, um, I mean, the rescue took twenty four minutes, and um, the uh, the decision took. I just, I guess a few minutes and then it's all over. 200 uh, seconds is bandied about a lot in the movie, right? right. You're going to be remembered for 200 seconds as opposed to 40 years. Of it's all very kind of brief. faithful service. And then, uh, I, I think the, uh, I think the, the, um, what do you call it? The, not the tagline, but the secondary title of either the book or the movie is the untold story. So the, is the movie, the story of the physical landing, the decision-making, um, uh, that's the challenge for the for for the approach to directing the movie. Do you focus on that, or do you focus on this quote unquote hidden story, which is how he goes up against the powers that be, the the investigators, to uh, to prove that he made the right decision, the uh, uh, be, because the 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 gist of the real conflict, uh, the the real heroism here, uh, even by Sullenberger's own admission, is is not what he did. Over and over again, he and his first officer repeat, "We were doing our job," and uh, he was he was using his experience and his intuition to do his job um, more so than relying entirely on um, the technology, which I think is the kind of the minor heroics. But it, you, you can't do too much with that in in terms of um, of of the movie. But where where you have the classic uh, man against bureaucracy, the Kafka esque. Where, where uh, struggle of the you know the lone individual against the forces that are amassing against him is in the investigation where um, uh, at a critical moment the um, the as the NTSB officials say to him we've done all these simulations and they all show that you could have chosen to fly back to LaGuardia or to Teterboro the engine was working and he asserts that it it isn't he doesn't trust the simulations and he said you are looking for human error. And if you really want to find if there's human error there, put humanity in the cockpit. I mean, so this is the this is the heroic aspect of the story, not the actual um, uh, landing in which he makes the decision intuitively. We we don't we 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 see his big face and he is making the decision. It isn't it isn't um, uh, like a wonderful movie from the 1950s that for some reason I always remember with John Wayne called The High and the Mighty. I don't know. It's because of the 50s or 60s. But it's about um, should a plane turn back or should a plane not turn back because it's flying into a storm. 
This is not that. The, that's over quickly, but it's the after, after heroism. I think certainly one of the accomplishments of this movie is that, at least for me, it was able to balance those two narratives, the one of the actual crash landing of the plane and then of the investigation from the NTSB, quite well uh, and to quite dramatic effect, I found. You know, we uh, get a number of different perspectives on the crash itself. And I found each face, kind of each reaction, whether it be the passengers and crew on board, whether it be the you know, captains in the at the front of the plane, whether it be someone in a control room, you know, who I don't even know what state they're in. I assume they're in somewhere in New York. I mean, the first time we see the plane crash, it's we're not even in the plane. We're, we just watch the face of someone who's trying to guide the plane towards a, a safe landing at a nearby yes, airport. The, the cameo of the young air traffic controller, the air traffic who's controller. afraid he might have lost the plane, is a, is it, it's almost like a nice uh, subplot without w- without any effort. But I think that Eastwood really succeeds in kind of milking this uh, event for all of its dramatic potential by giving us so many different perspectives on what happened. And the the narrative, I mean, I guess the parallel narrative of the investigation of the uh, NTSB, you know, questioning whether or not Sully made the right decision, whether there was human error, whether he should have, you know, relied upon the the training and also the expertise of people who are questioning him after the fact. I thought all of that only, you know, made more tense the the moments, the kind of reflections that we saw of the actual crash. Because once that seed of doubt is planted in the audience's head, uh, I began to question whether he made the right decision. And all of these different perspectives on the crash itself until, you know, I think Eastwood lands quite definitively on the side of Sully. I mean, he thinks that he did the, he made the right decision and and it's really a kind of a faceless bureaucratic enemy that is combating this heroic American individual who is competent and trying to do the right thing and is just bogged down by bureaucracy. I think that's where Clint Eastwood, maybe the uh, political conservative and also champion of like American individualism emerges. But for most of the movie, just like with American Sniper, I thought the moments of, again, the moments of conflict in American Sniper, I found of interest, but they were only heightened by the moments when he's home, right? When he's at a bar drinking alone, when he's he can't quite escape the trauma of the battlefield and only drives him back again and again uh, to Iraq. There, in American Sniper, we have an actual kind of physical and temporal return to the battlefield. Here, we have a continuous kind of psychological return to the battlefield. And we see Tom Hanks again and again replaying this in his mind, maybe even replaying it from the perspectives of other people who experienced that crash. And trying to come to terms with, you know, did I make the right decision? Because no matter how competent he is, I think he, there is some element of uncertainty for most of this movie. Well, I think I think uh, I would agree with um, most of what you say, but not all. I think I think it is deftly directed with flashbacks back and forth to the um, uh, to the cockpit to those moments of decision, uh, replaying it um, uh, as certain. You know the officials, and uh, um, uh, maybe even the look of his first officer plant some doubts. But it made me feel uncomfortable, very frankly, because because uh, we know the story. Uh, we do de- we do need a hero. Uh, uh, we did need a hero then. Uh, there was bad news. This line is bandied about several times in the film, and you know, as you as you said, exactly where Eastwood comes down on this. So very frankly, I felt that, uh, and I guess we'd have to read the book to see if he's exaggerated for purposes of creating tension. Um, uh, aspects of the of the of uh, Sullenberger's backstory 
in order to um, to plant this this doubt that um, is overcome at the end of the film. For example, um, we, we we find out um, that uh, he's on the verge of retirement after forty years of flying, and he's got some company. Uh, that's doing um, in, investigation of crashes. One of my favorite, just throw almost throwaway lines in the movie uh, when when he and his co-pilot Aaron Eckhart are in the front of the plane, and he says, "Man, you really are a good BSer, right?" And this guy who's, who Tom Hanks looks like the ultimate straight shooter, right? To have someone else accuse him right. of lying, right? He says, "Your company on the, your website looks like you've got a hundred employees. It's just you." That's what he we end up finding out. So that and then there's a little bit more of that, and that actually plants the doubt that is it possible that this guy at this point in his career wants to is he going to stage this spectacular thing in order to give him attention so he would he would be able to gin up customers. That's what that does. And it just, it made me uncomfortable because uh, it made me ask, is that in fact the case? Hmm. Um, uh, would he, w- is that in character? I mean, Sullenberger, the, uh, as portrayed by Hanks, is a real, very John Wayne-ish. Um, is he having trouble in his marriage? One of the interesting things that uh, Eastwood does in this film is after the crash, I guess it's standard operating procedure. He's co- kind of quarantined. He's in a hotel, can't be in physical contact with his wife, but he talks to his wife, and there's there's tension there. And in fact, that is one of the questions in the post um, post event interrogation. So, um, was he committing suicide or some uh, or, or what? You so, know, I don't I don't I don't think we're supposed to believe it, but. But I don't think we're supposed to not believe it fully either. You know, it's interesting the different directions that you took that line, whether he's he potentially suicidal or trying to gin up business. Really, I think I read it in a much simpler fashion, which is this is a man who exudes confidence and competence, but is not necessarily above lying about his skills or perhaps about resources available to him in order to maintain that image of um, of competence. And I think that for someone who is so, you know, a, a pilot of 40 years who does not, you know, allow for the element of human error within his own being, I think it's really interesting for people on the outside to say, wait a minute, perhaps you are not being as honest with me and with the world as, as you want to. Perhaps you're trying to put too much of a burden on your shoulders, and that in itself though it seems noble and certainly in line with how we define American characters, people who can, you know, carry these unimaginable burdens, perhaps that is part of their flaw, not necessarily in an admirable way, but they're they're trying to do too much by themselves, uh, and that could result in people getting hurt. Now, I wonder... Uh, well, but, but he is relying on him, on himself. I think the, the, the heroic moment par excellence in the film is after Sullenberger insists that the... Um, that the simulations that are being played uh, in order to, 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 to find the, uh, the uh, determining evidence that they, they in, uh, uh, in, include the time involved. And when, and, and when these kind of r- robotic pilots who are following all the, um, the protocols uh, have to make their decisions under the pressure of 200 seconds, they, 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 keep, they say abort, abort, abort. They can't make it to LaGuardia as the computer program, as the algorithms right. and and then the the woman it turns out that it's a woman in a, in a world of men the the I get maybe she's the she, PR person yeah. I don't know what but but she you know it's, she bore the brunt of the cartoonish the, villain of the NTSB right. she right? Turns Anna to him Gunn. and says 
you 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 are my you know it's it's a squeak it's a squeak of public recognition you put the humanity you put your intuition in the cockpit and you've and you have reminded us of this profound value that we and all our computers and technology have forgotten and you know you could you could roll the the violin tape at that point you know american sniper makes a similar turn on a dime at the end of a very you know complicated and rich movie we we have the sudden uh, kind of uh, hagiography of this person who all of a sudden you know he is ele- Chris Kyle is elevated to the status of American hero. A movie that is so complex ends with this funeral procession for him, and also some very odd scenes where he's walking around in a kitchen with a gun. But I I feel like Eastwood almost feels like he has to end up on the side where even though I'm interested in the uh, kind of internal conflict of these characters, ultimately they are American heroes and I'm going to give them the, the kind of final say on the matter. And I'm glad that you identified that scene, the confrontation with the NTSB, because that's the, that's the scene that we never get from Kafka, right? If we get the kind of immediate quarantining, we, we get the kind of faceless bureaucracy weighing down upon our hero who doesn't really understand why he's being punished. So we never get quite the scene where the hero gets to call out the bureaucracy for run you know being as transparently rigged as it actually is he right in kafka and, usually succumb to the, the bureaucracy right and, and unlike a kind of, a kind of kafka hero who is really a kind of anti-hero these are mm-hmm. real heroes uh sullenberger knows the system a- as well as his anta- antagonists we so First, I want to say you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. And we're going to be talking about uh, the new Magnificent Seven movie soon. But I want to ask one more question about uh, Sully, Clint Eastwood's And I want to ask you picture. one more question oh, well, about Sully before we, before we move from uh, airplanes to horses. But the, all right, so let me, I'll, I'll go first and then I want to hear yours. And, the, and my question is, uh, this movie has many allusions to September 11th and to the kind of lingering psychological trauma for everyone in New York City uh, in this, if the story takes place in 2009, this is eight years after uh, September 11th, but we get so many shots of people kind of getting up from their apartments to look out the window, of kind of exiting a corporate boardroom to stand slack-jawed in front of the window as the plane descends over the Hudson, uh, a car driving over the GW Bridge with someone's head just turning ever so gently to watch the plane. But there's always this fear that this is going to be another attack, and we get, and that fear is maybe manifest most violently in the nightmarish visions of Sully himself. The movie opens with a vision of a plane crashing into downtown Manhattan. We get another sequence where Sully's standing at a window and sees, you know, he's he's imagining right. what would have happened if he had done things differently. Right. He wakes up from a dream. But these are clearly right. allusions to the, yeah. you know, horror of the plane crashes that did happen uh, eight years before. And, you know, there are plenty of movies that have dealt either directly or indirectly with 9-11 since 9-11. But I actually, I found this movie somewhat sideways tack into that, into thinking about the lingering kind of just anxiety um, of people living in New York City, uh, even eight years later, I found that quite an effective kind of emotional response to try to elicit from an audience. Uh, what what do you think of this movie as a nine eleven movie? And I know I, I I I yeah I couldn't articulate it, but I felt exactly what you were saying as I watched the movie because that that little what do you call it, trope of the the airplane. Um, uh, was ever present. I think it's a kind of, um, you know, it's a kind of a teaser. Sir, sir, I mean, you've got, you've got a movie here where, where 
I don't know how you felt about it, but uh, it, you know the the tension was really for me was never really ratcheted up very high in the situation. I mean, because we all everybody was saved. It was really a kind of um, it was the triumph of an idea that was at stake. And so I think you know Eastwood is a he's a very intuitive kind of director. He knows um, and and he had. Um, he had good teachers in uh, Sergio Leone and those people, which we'll talk about when we get to Magnificent Seven. But he knows that a movie needs tension. And, uh, you know, uh, again, it's one of these things, uh, a little bit of like what we were talking about before, planting seeds of self-doubt, that it accomplishes that, but it does it, It does it, um, for me anyway, um, it, it diminishes a little, a little bit at the same time because mm-hmm. I, I know why he's doing it. And yet, I, it's funny. You and, know, yet it's, it, and yet it works. It's to me, a little diminished for you. I, oddly enough, I find it a bit more sophisticated and mm. somehow internalized. If if westerns are all about kind of externalizing that tension in gunfire between two combatants, here we have someone standing, you know, just stock still in front of a window, not even screaming as he sees a plane crash into it. Like he's just he's helplessly looking on and thinking, "What responsibility do I have in this?" you know, this plane crash that also isn't really happening. Um, and how does this vision relate to the trauma of a decade before? I think that, and I think American Sniper succeeds most at that level too. The conflict between, you know, the American Sniper and the Iraqi Sniper, um, or the, I, I forget if he's in Afghanistan, I think the Iraqi Sniper, it's, you know, it, it's, I, I wasn't as drawn into that narrative of the movie as what happens to Chris Kyle as he realizes that, one, he can't protect everyone on his side. Two, he can't protect himself. And three, he's killing not just you know combatants, but women and children in Iraq. Well, right. And uh, but what's interesting is that you have all these visual, uh, visual nine one one quotations as you mention it. But but there's never any discussion between uh, between Tom Hanks and his first officer about the when they tried the Hudson landing whether there will be a danger of um, of hitting a building. You you see that in in their nightmares, uh, but they don't discuss it. It seems like for the two hundred seconds that the movie is about that that wasn't an issue. That it was a, a clear shot at the river uh, and not flying between buildings. And you see it in the recreations in that final investigation scene, right, where we're seeing the pilots kind of smoothly coast over the buildings right. until thirty seconds is added, and then they're right. smoothly coasting into the buildings. Right. I feel like that the image of the plane kind of bursting into an actual physical structure it right. hovers over the I don't know, hovers over, and that's kind of what makes this movie dramatic to me thinking back to when it wasn't successful right when the planes right. did not avoid the building that's right and, it, 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 I, I think you're right and 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 the various references to do we we need something heroic now let's let's let this work out because why do we need something heroic because of 9-11 and we need we need um a situation where our machines save us uh, that they're that they're not instruments of our destruction. So speaking, oh, here's my question. Oh yes, please. Before we so speaking of uh, you know movies are always quoting each other, and uh, you know a guy like Eastwood's quoting he, himself all over the place. So what did you make of the coda to this film when we see the actual Sullenberger, uh, and he's at uh, I guess a little reunion after after. Uh, Things have quieted down. Uh, am I making this up? No. Is, is this after the credits? Because I'm, I'm not. It's after the credits. Oh, or, or, I don't know if I've seen. Did this, you cut? Tell... A, you had to get to the parking meter because <laughs> I may because have it's, so, it's the, the real Sullenberger in okay. his outfit, and I know it's him because I was at a 
book expo in, I guess, 2010 after he, oh, that's right, because the, the incident was 2009. I was trying to sell my novel in Minneapolis, and I was sitting at this little desk waiting for customers to come to be interested. And, you know, I had like three, you pe- saw three people, and Sully <laughs> was selling his book, and there were 300 people lined up for him uh, to give their autograph. So it's the same guy. So I is this a Schindler's List quote? Is that so what we're- it's a total mm-hmm. Schindler's List yeah. quote because the people say, they they look right at the camera after he's he gives them a little speech and Sullenberger says we'll we'll always be together with this you know and then this little Jewish lady comes up and says I'm seat fifty five A I'm seat seventy six B oh wow exactly so Schindler's yeah. list right and I, I I found that really gratuitous myself I don't I don't know. I guess you didn't have no to I didn't see it. it but that sounds uh-huh. awful and I think right. that honestly I mean this story. One reason that I had such low expectations for the movie, and I'm kind of sitting here pleasantly surprised, is that the story itself doesn't seem, you know, it seems kind of slight. It doesn't yes, seem to have right. that dr- dramatic weight to it. And but I it think worked. that I, I think that the more that Eastwood kind of leans upon the perceived heroism of the actual person, I mean, when you're showing someone in such reverential light as it sounds like this postcode is, I think that the movie is sapped of even more of its drama. I think that it becomes a story that explores heroism in an interesting way once it, you know, makes its way into Eastwood's kind of fictionalized realm. I mean, I'm, I'm watching Eastwood's movie. I'm not reading, you know, articles about what That's happened. That's right. And I think one thing then, we had not discussed, and I guess we should leave this now, and go to the to the uh, mythical West, but but let's give credit to Tom Hanks. His his yeah. face, you know, forty feet high, uh, always self restrained, uh, n- never doing a touchdown dance, um, st- staying in character. Uh, that's huge. Uh, uh, had he not been able to uh, convey the tension without uh, without giving any um, uh, sort of inappropriate emotions, he, he would not have worked as the hero. And you know, we extolled him in his performance for Bridges in Bridges Spies yes. last year, in which he played a similarly, you know, competent everyman, but in a very different context, and that he was uh, almost kind of elevated above his station to achieve kind of heroic feats because of uh, his relatively like mundane but precise skills. Here we have someone. Uh, this is a much more kind of humorless performance. There isn't a lot of smiling that oh, Sully gives us. Humorless. Um, and maybe that's Eastwood himself. Maybe, maybe there's not a lot of humor in, in comparison to Spielberg and the Coen brothers who wrote right. uh, Bridge of Spies. But it's a nice complimentary performance. But who so. wrote this one? He, he didn't. He, Eastwood did not do the adapting. Somebody no, adapted. someone else did. That's there right. is one funny line though after the uh, after the uh, in, after he's vindicated at the investigation. Um, the uh, the NTSB spokeswoman turns to Aaron Eckhart and said, "Is there anything you would like to add, or uh, that has not been discussed?" He's the com the comedic relief, right? Thing. And the, yeah. the, the line he said, uh, or I think her question is, "Would would any would you have wished to do anything different to be the case?" And he said, "Yes, um, it should have happened in July." But um, <laughs> <laughs> and then that's like the end of the movie too. And that may have been the last line. It's a bit of an odd place to end. Okay, well, this is, I think, an appropriate place to begin our discussion of The Magnificent Seven. Antoine Fuqua's remake of the 1960 John Sturgis film stars Denzel Washington, Chris Pratt, Ethan Hawke, and a team of other current and rising stars as outlaws and bounty hunters in post-Civil War Wild West, who shed their selfishness and take on the responsibility of protecting the small town of Rose Creek, which is under assault by the malevolent coal baron Bartholomew Bogue, played by Peter Sarsgaard. 
Much like the original Western and Kurosawa's 1954 film Seven Samurai, Fuqua's movie divides its runtime into a tidy kind of three-act structure with a prologue. The prologue, the assault upon the small town, and then the first act, the assembling of our heroes, the second act, the training of the villagers to fight back, and then the third, the bloody conclusion in which we see the actual conflict take place between our heroes and the bad guys. Uh, what do you think of this movie, Alan? It's, it's depiction of heroism and... Is there any reason to make another version of The Magnificent Seven when we have a perfectly good version from 1960 to watch on DVD? Well, I, you know, I'm a real fan of the of the of the the 1960s version with 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 Eli Wallach doing his manic psychotic uh, Pedro or whatever he is, the leader of the of the uh, marauding um, the bad Mexican ban- band banditos. Um, and, but I tried to watch this. Um, I tried to be good about this and tried to watch it as as if it were a new movie to to come to it uh, fresh. Uh, in, in part, I think because it, it if I'm not mistaken, it was routinely uh, kind of um, panned by by critics. Um, uh, and I tried to and I tried to watch it um, without reference to 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 um, uh, the Eli Wallach Yul Brunner film. But it's but Steve McQueen, Charles Steve Bronson, McQueen, right. Charles Bronson, all those guys. And this movie is star studded as well. I mean, it's not like this is lacking for no. It's star studded, star and, potential, right? But 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 uh, I cease trying not to see the connections when the movie cease trying not to make the connections. And um, you know, uh, uh, and you I, know, you watch Sully with you know references to other Clint Eastwood movies in mind, with references to Schindler's List in mind. I, right. I don't know if it's quite. Uh, I, I appreciate you wanting to go into this as blank a slate as possible, but I think as moviegoers, and especially as people who talk about movies and try to evaluate them, I think you always have that context in your mind. Oh that, yeah, they they sit on it sits on your shoulder, and and um, especially because the 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 uh, uh, the, the music is the same, the spectacular. Um, I, 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 if I had a voice, I would uh, sing it for you. Um, do do do. There do, you go. Do do do. Well, now who is that? Jerry Goldsmith. I think it's Elmer Bernstein. Elmer Bernstein, spectacular. I I, I think it's it, it's it, it, for heroic music script. I think it's way up there in the the top five ever. But this movie, it's not. But, they don't do the exact same score. They, they don't. take the score and then they kind of make it a bit slower. They make it <laughs> a bit slower because the movie is right. But they they actually they use the original toward towards the very end where they. Um. It, it's um. But but I. I like this movie because, um, um, you know, because it, uh, it, it, it just embraced what it was. And, and, uh, uh, we could talk about the, the ways in which it made itself, uh, makes itself relevant to, to our, our, our time to, um, you know, they added a woman, there wasn't a woman in sight in the 1960s film. And, you know, I'm a fan of the original Kurosawa and I also think, uh, uh, it's a great story and it's really, it's really hard to make a bad Magnificent Seven. Uh, and it, they're very, they're various versions of it. Um, and it always comes out kind of right. I mean, I think the dirty dozen, uh, is, is the Magnificent Seven in another, and uh, we probably, if we thought about it. And I think even a movie like Ocean's Eleven that may be more, you know, more familiar to contemporary audiences right. where, you know, so much emphasis is put on the assembling of this kind of, 
this crackerjack team of oddballs and misfits and rogues and vigilantes. And, you know, they all, I mean, we're talking about Eastwood's conception of heroism, despite the overture at the end towards how this was, you know, not just the work of Sully, but it was a collaboration between, you know, the co-pilot and everyone else kind of performing their duties as told. Really, it ends up as, you know, Sully is a somewhat heroic individual because of how much he can uh, kind of resist the bureaucratic machine and also rely upon his years of experience and knowledge about how to fly a plane. Here we have, if not a team, at least a group of individuals who seem to elevate themselves above their own. You know, this is like synergy. That's what Magnuson 7 is, right, is about, right? It's about how people can become kind of more than themselves, act more selflessly towards the world, uh, maybe achieve something greater, and certainly sacrifice themselves when they are working but, together but, but don't instead kid yourself. of this as an is, individual. This is, this is synergy with an indispensable man, uh, uh, the Denzel Washington figure, uh, Yul Brunner. Uh, I, mean, I mean, the real question is, you. Uh, I guess the real question, in which, and it's wonderful that pe- I, I don't think people are discussing it even, is, you know, can, can there be, you know, uh, the, the superhero, and he's, he's sort of a superhero, is um, Denzel Washington, a black guy, as opposed to Yul Brunner, who is a... Um, um, uh, he he's a white complexioned guy, but but I don't think anybody ever even knows what country he ever came from. You know, he was the king of Siam. Maybe he was Czech. Nobody knows. But he was he was the white guy. But he wore all black. Yeah, I so found that's that interesting. I that the outfit was quite similar, right? That to, between was, Denzel, it and... was like a Western ninja. Now you know? I wonder what you thought of the relationship between Denzel's character and Chris Pratt's character uh, in comparison to Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen, because. At least in this movie, the kind of movie star kind of superhero tension is very much at the front. I mean, Chris Pratt gives a much more comedic performance than Steve McQueen. I think it's a bit more of a slapstick. Help me with this. Pratt was which character? Pratt is the character who, uh, I believe his name is Faraday. He's the Irish drunk who's a card shark. And also, you know, he has an important scene with a stick of dynamite at the end. I, I don't know if he has the same kind of swagger uh, as Steve McQueen or charm as Steve McQueen, but he's certainly playing for, pre- you know, bigger laughs. Uh, and I think he's got, you know, a pretty, a pretty winning style of comedy. But he, you know, he is almost as at the center of this group as, um, as Denzel Washington. And I found that uh, the kind of push and pull of audiences' affection for either one of those characters to actually be leaning more towards Pratt because of I think this movie plays up the the kind the, there's plenty of comedy in the original Magnificent Seven but it's a bit more deadpan like when Charles Bronson is kind of chopping his you know his big logs of wood and then he says that you know it costs eight hundred dollars to hire him nine hundred dollars to hire him and then your writer right. says we've got twenty and he's like I'll take it right. <laughs> you know that's right. that's funny here we have someone uh you know. I don't know. The, it's it's a bit goofier. This this performance. Uh, it is goofier, and he, he, he and and uh, yeah, you're right. As I reflect on the movie, I can almost see his face, you know, from the top to the <laughs> bottom of the screen in close up uh, more often than we see uh, Denzel. And if it, Denzel is, he's a he is a if anything, he's a he, he plays a, um, a kind of um, uh, a behind the scenes hero role. He's certainly he's certainly essential. I mean, he is kind of. Uh, Jesus to the disciples uh, in... Um, and I think he's very good. I mean, oh, I, I, I don't want to diminish Denzel's performance, but right. I I feel like he is kind of given a bit of a backseat, whereas Yul Brenner's character takes such a... You know, he is the ringleader. You know, he's the one assembling everyone together. I feel like this, this movie is uh, not... 
I mean, I, I thought the strongest parts of this movie were the kind of rounding up the team sequences. It's fun to watch people kind of excelling in their particular area of it's, expertise. It's and then fun. And we it's see fun, them it's, join the, you know, it's fun to look at the coefficients too. I mean, I was it right. James Coburn, who was the, the guy whose, whose weapon was the knife. Yeah. And here he's you so have this, uh, this Asian a Korean act. actor. Yeah. You have a Korean actor and he doesn't have just one knife. He's got like a whole kitchen full of knives and he does these great tricks and it's all very martial arts bruce lee but definitely the the best part of that uh kind of redefinition of that character i found as you know i thought the korean actor dude i'm blanking his name i thought he did quite a good job but i loved ethan hawk in this role ethan right? hawk as, as, the, as the kind of guy who was uh, who, who backs out at the end and then returns. but yeah he but he's also the kind of the drunken courtly southern gentleman who has such a reputation for uh, right. extreme acts of violence that he doesn't right. even have to raise his voice in order to get yeah, people to it, pay double. It's wonderful. These are stereotypes. But one of the reasons why I think these movies get made again and again is because all the seven, uh, they're, they're tour de force roles for each actor to bring out the best. Yeah, I mean, the actor, I don't know who the equivalent is and would be in the, uh, er, er, uh, in the 1960s version, but the actor who plays the big bearish guy, yeah, I don't know if he, he was wonderful. He was great. Vincent he, D'Onofrio. Vincent uh, D'Onofrio. Yes. Just wonderful. And, and you know, uh, I mean, um, and when he finally gets killed, uh, I think he's the, the third before the end he gets killed. I mean, he gets so many arrows in him and he keeps going. He really looks like a portrait of San Sebastian. But we should really, um, as much fun as we're having talking, <coughs> excuse me, talking but, about this. And to justify that a little a, bit. What's, what's a better movie? Oh, I mean, definitely the original. The original, because right. And, but also, this movie, the the twenty sixteen version. You know, it, it may seem a bit indulgent to be, and it is indulgent to be talking about comparisons between characters. But also, this movie, almost at a scene by scene, line by line level, is quoting the nineteen sixty. Well, you know, this isn't a reimagining of the no, story. I mean, we no. have some of the lines kind of recycled, and you know, it's it's a it's a nice kind of winning homage to a great movie. But one of the challenges that any director faces when they want to do a remake of an already great movie is the justification of why is, why is this worth doing? And I think that, you know, one avenue we could talk about is this kind of multicultural angle. You talked about Denzel being a black man as the leader. We have a Korean uh, actor playing one of the central characters. We have a Comanche. We have a woman in one of the leading roles. Did you find and, this? And, and, and the thing that you've, the, the key thing. The Mexican. The, the key uh, thing that Anton Foucault has done in, in terms of this issue you're talking about. Whereas the, um, the 1960s version has white guys saving brown skin people. Here you have a black guy, an Asian guy, a Latino gunfighter. Um, I've heard, who am I and missing? And a woman. And a right. woman who's a, who is a complete, uh, addition, uh, 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 saving hapless, hapless uh, Donald Trump supporter whites right. and who I, can't get it together. I mean, it's 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 the movie it crosses its eyes and uh, crosses its t's and dots its eyes with political correctness. And yet I don't it, know if I it fault works. It, yet it, it works. works. Yeah, yet it works. Um, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know if that was either successful or unsuccessful for me. It wasn't a distraction by any means, and I didn't think that the movie was too interested in exploring. I mean, there are certainly, you know, we, the character who is a Comanche does not, or there's question as to whether he speaks English. He uses a bow and arrow. I mean, there's, yeah, there are things, he says, I'm yeah, hungry. Right. <laughs> right <laughs> yeah, before but, the gunfight, he says, I'm hungry. Right. But it's not like all of these kind of different colored skin people are playing the same type of kind of typical white American Western role. You know, it's not a bunch of people imitating 
Yul Brenner or Steve McQueen. We have some、mm. kind of cultural specificities, yeah, can, no, they, a little it, bit, but I, for some reason, that multicultural it didn't. But the, 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 add the too the, much. What, but the, what did、me. you think of the、uh, the addition of the the you know the I guess it was the widow of the guy the bad guy shot in the opening movie. You know, she she's the ringleader.、Uh, she's the one who's going to organize the town to to be the army for these guys who are the knights. But、um, one of the moments that really struck me as、uh, well, well, two things.、Um, Denzel would be dead were it not for her. She saves him at the last moment. So,、oh, yay, women! And she's not even one of the seven. She's sort of like seven and a half or something. She's the half, right? Yet, yet she saves. And it's a、hero. bit of a Deus Ex Machina scene where you know, down to the last second, where our hero doesn't even know he's about to get killed, and then all of a sudden. He doesn't know that he's. Well, she's, saved, Mary, but... she's Mary Magdalene to to, her,、right. to his Jesus. And the other thing that's interesting is, did you? I don't know why I remember these things when I can't remember so much other stuff that's important. But who are the three that remain standing after the battle? And we should we should talk about the violence in this film、yeah. for a second. But who are the three who remain standing? It's Denzel, the black guy, it's the Comanche, the Native American, and the Mexican, and the Mexican. All the white guys are dead. I mean, it's 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 a movie. Whose heroism is almost like sort of based on the new demographics of the country, right? And it seems to be more of well, I wonder if that is a kind of race or color blind result. I mean, definitely the character, the white characters who die are、um, the stupid Irishmen. They're, they're stupid. They're stupid and they're drunk. And they're all <laughs> you know, drunk. They're, they're all they just they all they all had their day. Right. They were in other movies. They、right. were in other decades. Yeah. Although this I, is the time for these groups to be ascendant. No, the movie is. The movie is, you know,、uh, it's clearly rich for that kind of, yeah, not necessarily compelling, but I think very evident interpretation. So this movie, you mentioned it's it's three act structure. The third act is really twenty five thirty minutes straight of pretty,、uh, I don't know about gratuitous, but quite kind of visceral bloodshed. I mean, we see a lot of. Guns fired. We see a lot of bodies falling from tops of buildings through windows.、Uh, so many ways to, to there are a lot of different ways to die. So many ways to kill and to die.、Um, and we also see. I mean, to this movie's credit, and also to Kurosawa's original vision and to John Sturges' film, not all of you know this. One of the kind of bad you know side effects of having a group of seven is that,、uh, as opposed to just one, is that it's a lot more likely that some of the group of seven are not going to make it out at the end of the movie, right? And so some of our heroes, who we've developed some kind of attachment to over the course of the movie, do die during the during the final battle sequence. And I think that you know so often movies miraculously save every single one of their heroes because we've formed some emotional attachment to them. Not not in this movie.、Uh, the I did see this movie at nine forty at night. So by the time that the violence started, it was around midnight. It was very late, and I can't say that it kept me too engaged. I may have dozed off a couple of times, but I think that that is as much a problem with the movie as it is with me because the violence just got too repetitive and boring at the well, end. Well, I have to well Tom, I, I agree with you. I saw the movie in the run-up to uh, the uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish High Holidays.、Uh, I thought it might p- prepare me for repentance.、Uh, But boy, I think the movie does have to repent from、um, this long sequence of twenty-five minutes. Which、uh, now, don't get me wrong, I like this kind of stuff because, actually,、uh, speaking of、um, you know quotations, it's very much、uh, of the violence of Sam Peckinpah and, and the, the Wild, Wild Bunch. Bunch.、Yeah. But even he, you know, let, you know, did it for ten or twelve minutes. 
this is this is really like um but also there's a point to the violence in that it's meant to upset us here the violence isn't necessarily upsetting it's just of long duration the violence (laughs) becomes a kind of pornography of violence it's violence for its own sake and worse than that it it, you know it, it comes perilously close to forgetting why you like the movie for the first two and a half hours you like the movie because it it is uh people with uh with uh specific skills um willing to help people who need them even though those people with the, the specific skills say things like um you know if 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 god didn't want it that way uh he would you know he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't have made sheep to be shorn but so is the self sacrifice of pretty selfish it, people it's the sel- it's the self sacrifice of and it what it what it does is it reassures you in a certain way that in a in an incredibly oppressive world there are people out there or there are forces out there call it uh, re- the religious forces or um you know some people riding in wearing black well here i mean i didn't love the performance of peter sarsgaard but the character is meant to be capitalism incarnate right Right. i mean here's the the vicious kind of merciless nature of that's right and he right he'll do anything he'll he'll shoot his own people in order to uh get access to this gold but uh and i thought he was actually the weakest of the actors and and uh you know the violence does make you forget those Things uh, that we talked about that really are the reason why, even though it's a sequel, um, you you still have affection for this. Because at heart, we all want to believe that the world is configured that way. That's why it's a successful uh, template, I think. So if we can, as we wind down our conversation about Sully and the Magnificent Seven here on Deep Focus, uh, I wonder if we could tie... A nice, neat little bow about depictions of heroism in American movies, or maybe just in these two movies. We you won't t- try you to. Tie it, we Tom. won't try to tackle the. Well, I mean, I I went into this discussion thinking that there was a pretty clear um, kind of opposition of two different uh, understandings of American heroism, at least as depicted as depicted in cinema. We have the individualistic uh, kind of Clint Eastwood, the kind of lone warrior who manages to overcome the not just inefficiencies, but the kind of oppressive nature of bureaucracy in Sully. And then we have the selfish individuals bounding together to be a team in The Magnificent Seven and being, you know, this kind of group dynamic as still in a country that fetishizes the kind of uniqueness of each person, still allowing them to achieve some kind of, if not synergy or transcendence or something, you know, some some kind of betterment of the community by working together. So I thought, okay, here is a pretty clearly opposed dynamic. But... I, I, I don't know. I don't know if these movies are trying to go too deep on offering any, uh, you know, assertions on on what heroism is. But I do think that Eastwood, in particular, does a great job of showing the both the kind of external influences and the internal ramifications of big traumatic events, events that we think, you know, we've been told are meant to be met with heroism, but in fact. Uh, only underscore how fragile we are as people. Well, I, I think I think to, my take on the way you've laid it out is that we're trending towards a groupiness in in the way we think about our our heroes, and I think that's really a good sign. The um, uh, you know a kind of uh, anti-Trumpian sense of that we don't need individual saviors because we we are all bound together, and even uh, even Sully, the Tom Hanks character. And more than one scene in the movie uh, says, I didn't do it alone. 
uh, my first officer was here, and you, the passengers, uh, you you know, uh, you exited properly, and they were out of that airplane in 24 minutes, and uh, all the people who were coming to rescue them in New York Harbor. So uh, I I I I think that um, you know the rugged individual who saves all is is still there, but we know we are um, we are in need of each other, even in movies about heroes. And this, you know, that's the ethos of all of these Marvel movies as well, right? All of these superhero movies that we're just bombarded with. I mean, it's veering away from the kind of Iron Man single figure portraits. And now we have the Avengers, right? We have this assembly of kind of heroic individuals who managed to accomplish, who managed to like retain their uniqueness while still accomplishing something as a team. Right. And poor, poor whites need <laughs> black leaders with, right. and we especially need women. Right. Is the is what comes through. So I I don't know. I recommend both. Of the, I I think Sully in particular, Magnificent Seven. Maybe check out the Sturgis and definitely the Kurosawa movies before this one. But Def, definitely yeah, the are, Kurosawa movie. And, movies. And, and my favorite version of the of uh, of the samurai films, the Ronin, with you know these masterless knights. Actually, my very favorite one is called Ronin with Robert De Niro, who plays a, a um and 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 this is also a, a I love this character who is a kind of thief who has a master uh, crook who uh, has great values. Uh, and it's one of my very favorite films where where he um, uh, does not do what the his code of Bushido tells him to do at the last minute for love, and he ends up um, losing his life. It's But it's spectacular. But he's a single ronin. Well, but nice it, little bonus recommendation yes. of Ronin. You know, I actually haven't seen that one, but ah, I, I'll make sure to check it out. Wonderful film. Well, thank you so much for chatting, Alan. It's so it's so great to have you back. Hopefully, we'll talk with you next week about some more movies. You're my hero, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, okay, well, you've been listening to Deep Focus. You can find an archive of all previous episodes of the show at deepfocusradio.com. And coming up next on WNHH is Elisa's Cocktail Hour. But first, let's hear a bit of music. <laughs> 